This is MarTech Interviews, a podcast from DK New Media, publishers of MarTech, the leading publication for sales and marketing professionals to research, discover, and learn how technology is driving business results. Your host is Douglas Carr. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. This is Douglas Carr with another in our MarTech interview series. And uh, this is a long time coming. I'm almost ashamed that I haven't had either of these two guys on the podcast in in quite a long time. I think maybe Joe was on it, but I have Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose on, and we're going to talk about their new book, Killing Marketing. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Mr. Carr. It is a pleasure. And yeah, Robert, absolutely. Yes. Thank pleasure you. Pleasure being on with you again. This is well, fantastic. you know, I, I, you know, whatever, dude, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't see enough of you well, in my life. We, we spent all last week together, Douglas. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what you get. Well, and then, and, and so let me, let me, I, I want to count that down because I had a co-author as well when I wrote my book. Um, how likely, you know, were you guys, how close were you to putting each other to death by the end of the book? Well, let me answer that first, Robert, before you, before you, uh, <laughs> dive in with something I don't want you to say. Actually, we, this, so this is the second book we wrote together. Managing content marketing was really Robert's brainchild and I was sort of along for the ride. This one, we really did separate chapters. Like we talked about who wants to take what. And then we went off and wrote our chapters and then, okay, we, we have it. We had a due date and we were done. I mean, Robert, I don't know how it worked for you, but I thought it was great because you and I work very differently when we write. And yeah. so we didn't have to talk to each other or, or work with each other at all. <laughs> and it just came together at the end. And we had a little bit of editing, but other than that, it wasn't bad. Well, yeah, it was, the, I think that was the key is that we kind of, you know, cause one of the things that, you know, and Douglas, I don't know if you, 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 you felt this, um, when you wrote your book with a co-author, but one of the things, and I wrote another book with a co-author and, and one of the biggest challenges is, integrating the different tones and styles into one voice of a book. And so we, what we did was we said, Hey, let's just lean into that fact that we have such different voices and different tones in the way we speak. And so let's just take those separate chapters and we don't have to mess with it at all. Nice. And it really worked. It re- it really did work so that having individual bylined chapters really, you know, you know, it, it, you get a set. And then when we did the audible book, it made it even better because we each did our own chapters. And so it really fit the voice and the tone. And, and I think, I think the book's stronger because of it, actually. Oh, that's beautiful. I, uh, the funny story, uh, that, and I, and of course this is about you guys, but I'll tell you the funny little story about my book was I, I partnered with uh, a lady, Chantel Flannery, who's still an incredible friend of mine. And, uh, and she's basically this tiny little, uh, Italian woman, uh, with an incredible, I think she should have been a drill sergeant or something. <laughs> and so when Wiley said, Hey, here's your schedule and here's what you need to write and when you need to write it, I knew that I needed somebody just to beat me to a pulp to get every chapter out. And that was Chantel f- for me. So, um, so it was a little bit, <laughs> it was a little bit different for me. Um, I, and, and I'm talking to her again about doing some more work together. So she obviously doesn't hate me too bad for it, but, but uh. <laughs> always the key. <laughs> yes. Well, we're both, both Joe and I are, are good procrastinators. So we were keeping each other honest, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it neither one of us was the drill sergeant in that uh, in in that relationship no, and, and it was lucky because we had 
McGraw Hill to do that for us. Yeah. Well, we had what was it? We had the due date, Robert, and I think you and I both on our calendar. That's <laughs> yeah, when we had exactly. all our writing. It was the week yeah. before <laughs> everything. Yeah. How's you? How you doing on your chapters? Well, same as you. Haven't started. Yeah. yeah let's get going. <laughs> That's on right. Now. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, uh, you know, for folks that don't know you, I don't know that there's anybody listening to my podcast who wouldn't. But uh, go ahead and introduce yourselves and give people your background and uh, and maybe, you know, Joe, maybe talk a little bit about your future, too. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if anybody wants to hear about that. But I'll go first, Robert. So I'll, I'll try to be brief right. on this. So, you know, I've been in the right. content marketing industry for 17 years now. It's hard to believe. Started at a at a large business-to-business business publishing company, got involved in content marketing, had the entrepreneurial itch, started what is now Content Marketing Institute in 2007, hooked up with Mr. Robert Rose. I think it was 2008 we decided because I can never remember yep. exactly when we met. <laughs> and uh, and then put together this movement around, hey, there are brands out there that can build audiences and it might be a good business model for the future. Uh, I've written, written or co-written five books. Uh, Killing Marketing is our fifth. And uh, as for the future, you know, we sold, my wife and I own Content Marketing Institute. We had a fantastic team of people. We sold the company in June of 2016 and December 31st will be my last day this year. And I'm, I'll still be, you know, I'll st- still keep in touch with the team. I'm still speaking a content marketing world, but I'm taking sort of a, a full sabbatical off and I'm doing uh, no, no internet January. I'm going to see how that goes. And I'm doing some bucket list trips in February and I'm just looking forward to the time with the family and we'll see where it goes. Good for you. Well, I, I, and, you know, personally, congratulations. I want to get that uh, on air because, um, you as, you have also been a very transparent person in sharing, you know, some of the, you just the, the highs and lows of owning a business. And, uh, and it's absolutely inspiring to, you know, to those of us that might be a few years behind you. <laughs> Well, I think actually, I think that's the last time we talked, Douglas. And I was, you know, it was in 2009 where we were thinking about shutting the whole thing down. Wow. And it, it was another like nine months later that thank goodness we did the pivot and made it work. And I think that all, I think that was because of Robert Rose. If I didn't meet that gentleman. Oh, he just dear. convinced me that we just had oh, to go no. all the way. <laughs> I'm sorry, Robert. You go ahead. It is getting it is getting thick in here, you guys. That's what happens um, after uh, 209 episodes of our podcast. That's you, right. you go ahead, sir. Exactly I, I want right. to hear about your um, your career. You go ahead. I'm, no, you don't want to <laughs> yes, hear about my career. I do. Go, the, please. The, oh, <laughs> stop. Um, I have been um, uh, in, I mean, I, now I've got the gray hair to show it. I've been in marketing for 30 years now, which is um, uh, a, a sad and happy state of affairs all in the same breath. I started in television um, in the mid-90s. Um, when Mark and cable TV was still a fun thing. That's where I cut my teeth in marketing and then grew up through the dot com era running de- different things from everything from internet consulting to running strategy for an ad agency and then fell in the early 2000s into a startup software company. I was a CMO and head of product for a startup software company. And without even realizing it, said, you know, when they plopped $6 million of money, of venture money on my desk and said, go, yeah, go do that marketing thing. Um, <clears throat> built this thing that I 
I just built this operation like a media company because I, we were competing with IBM and HP and Oracle and, you know, Microsoft. And, you know, we were a little startup company and we were never going to beat them on anything, you know, that had to do with money or brand awareness or anything like that. And so I built, I hired a team of content creators, you know, writers and journalists and designers. And I basically built a little media company inside the startup. And weirdly enough that, you know, we were producing white papers and blogs and, uh, you know, webinars and, you know, events and, and basically it worked weirdly. And, um, I was out on the speaking circuit in 2008 sort of telling my tale of success of this startup company. And I met Joe at the, at this conference in 2008 and I bought his book, the get content, get customers book. Um, and much you to his chagrin one. and now Thank my God. chagrin. <laughs> yes, I was the one. Yes. I bought, um, contentmarketing.com because I was like, this is what I want to hang my hat on. And I ended up having dinner with Joe and we ended up just getting along as you can tell famously. Um, and, um, we, you know, we started working together and I sort of stopped doing what I was doing at the startup and, Basically, you know, started joining uh, CMI to run strategy and have been there ever since. And and super, I mean, it's the best move I ever made in my career. Quite frankly, I'm I'm the happiest guy that. Uh, ah, I love hearing that. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, and and that brings us to the book, um, which I got to say, when uh, you guys sent me a uh, pre published copy. So thank you very much for that. Um, I always, I always feel special when I get one of those, you know, um, do not share and there's stuff imprinted all over it so that you can't, you know, put it out there for the world to see. And, um, and, and when I was reading through it, I was like, okay, this is a really different book. I, uh, and it wasn't something that I expected, especially coming from, you know, content marketing experts, you know, that had been building their business, you know, uh, you know, through this, this was, this was truly kind of a pivot of, you know, I don't even want to put it into words. You know, it was basically a pivot on, you know, how you should look at your, your overall content marketing and how you should look at an audience differently. And, and most of all, how you should look at the revenue that you can gain from that, uh, differently. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what motivated you guys, uh, to write this and why it was such an important book to get out there? Sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, uh, Look, this, as Joe and I like to say, you know, we, we, we wrote this book very quickly, but it was easily, you know, 10 years in the making, uh, of this book. It's just what we've seen, uh, and observed over the hundred plus, you know, client projects that we've done, helping them operationalize the model of content, looking at marketing more broadly, seeing what's going on at the event every year and just watching. And we had sort of front row seats to the trends that were happening in content. And really what it came to was we were having a discussion about <clears throat> the real function of marketing, not even just content, but what is what does marketing do in the business? And Joe actually came up, you know, and, and said, you know, it's very much like that old Mark Twain uh, quote um, that he, of course, he never really said, but it's attributed to him mostly, which is, you know, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for absolute sure that does. And so we started with a question, which is what if everything we know about what's going on with marketing today is what's holding us back? And we said, what if the big question, sort of the BHAG, if you will, is what if we could change marketing from a cost center in business to a profit center? 
Why does it have to be a cost center? Because as we grew CMI, we watched it happen. We watched where every single marketing initiative we've ever done has always been built around the idea of how can it make money? How can that marketing initiative make money and help us drive more people to go to content marketing world, which is sort of our center of our product and service universe. And we've watched it work. So why can't other companies do the same? And so what we said was the core of that is really building an audience. And so how can we write a book that talks about the brands that are out there that are generating strategies that build audiences And how can we then outline how companies can change the way that they look at revenue and cost savings based on a strategy of building an engaged audience? And there's a different, there's a different perspective there too that you even have to take at what an audience is. Uh, And, and what I mean by that is if you're looking at your audiences, I own, right? And this is what I think a lot of companies do is I, I own this little pocket of audience or they own that pocket of audience and I, I have to go buy that attention from them. Um, this really, I think, looks at it as a bigger scope. And that's that, you know, my, my audience isn't something that I own just to kind of plot them through the customer journey and purchase whatever I want them to purchase. I really need to start looking at my audience, uh, you know, like you said, as a revenue center, but uh, uh, on much broader terms, right? Not necessarily everybody's a prospect for the three things that I own, but maybe these people are, are valuable beyond just the products and services that I provide. Well, I think, I think that's the key. By the way, Robert, you summed that up fairly well. So congratulations with the. With <laughs> Wait, are you guys just going to give yeah. accolades to each other uh, throughout this whole podcast? Did I, did I miss a, did I miss a fight before the yeah. podcast? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, no, no. This is, it's me too. It's the end of the day. This is what, this is what you're going to get. This is all good. Um, Joe likes to Joe Joe likes to neg me so that I get I I'm I'm I'm, I'm more apt to be picked up by him. That's basically what well, I like I've, to do. I've I've learned that if you do that, if you nag him a little bit like that, he he that he shines. He just he it, he breaks out of his shell and he gets we get his best performance. So I'm I'm working that. And as you can see by his opening, Douglas, I mean it's just that's you know, true. Not more, much more you can say to that. Um. Well, I mean, when, when go back to the statement that Robert, you know, what are we doing in marketing? And when we look back and we start to look at the evolution of the marketing department, what we realize is, is that basically the, the marketing department itself and the setup of it in most enterprises hasn't changed at all in the last 50 to 75 years. Um, yeah, yeah, we've added social groups and we've added, oh, here's our content group. Here's digital and Here's new PR and all that stuff. We're going to put it together, but it's really set up around interruption, advertising, traditional PR, whatever you want to call it. It's fine. Um, and we're not against advertising or PR in any way, but we're like, if we're going to take advantage and really create a new business model that we absolutely believe is possible, we have to get beyond that and look at the marketing function differently. And that's uh, the Douglas to your point is. If you get somebody that opts in to receive your messaging on an ongoing basis, so becomes an audience member, so you're given the privilege of communicating with that group of people ongoing because you're delivering something of value on a regular basis. Most organizations, to your point, they limit it to, oh, great, how do I move that person through the funnel and ultimately sell them something? And then maybe we'll have a loyalty initiative. That's fine. But other than that, that's that's our purpose. 
Well, we actually think and know, and we've seen from ourselves and from the case studies we talk about in the book, you can monetize that person in that audience one, two, three, five, seven different ways, up to 10 different ways, if you just think about the model a little bit differently. So that's what we're trying to do with killing marketing and say, you, I think we need to look at the function of marketing completely differently. And Robert says this really well when, and obviously we have, we're on our eight city tour right now, masterclass tour, and Robert teaches this. And you talk about the, the quote, I think it's from Drucker, right? Where you talk about our, our, the goal of marketing is to create a customer. Not, right. not, not to find a customer, but to create a customer. Right. We market, we create a market. And we really, Robert and I really do believe that. And if, and if that's what marketing is all about, then we've been doing it wrong for an awfully long time. When if we really go out and we, build these audiences. Some of them are buyers. Some of them are gatekeepers. Some of them are influencers. It depends on what you're selling and what you want to sell. But there's a whole new potential for things we could sell, things we might sell. If we listen to our audience, we get to know that audience better than anyone else. They will tell us things that they would buy from us that we would never have thought of before. And, you know, great example is it's that amazon.com is doing very, very well. I mean, they're I mean, I believe in five years or so, they'll probably be the largest company by market cap in the world since they're getting into every every marketplace on the planet. So it's thinking those ways. And maybe 1% of the companies that Robert and I talk to are prepared to make a change like this, even though the opportunity is right in front of us. So we said, look, we've got to create a book and we've got to get it in front of chief marketing officers and CEOs so that they see there's another way and marketing isn't just a tax on the business. And it's funny that you say that because uh, over the last few years, even with MarTech, you know, in my publication is that's what I've been searching for, right? Is all, where are all the layers of opportunity for me, you know, like you said, to provide value, but to also monetize, you know, the people that are engaged with me and trust with me. And I think a lot of people are surprised that, you know, sure, there's speaking gigs and consulting opportunities, but there's also sponsorship, affiliate, you know, training, um, you know, uh, of selling books, right? You know, all of the different layers. And then there's my network. Now, all of a sudden, I have a network of people that are interested in the audience that trust me. And because they're in my network and I trust them, I bring them to my network and, you know, and offer them to that as well. And I think it's, it's interesting taking that model, which honestly, you know, has taken me 10 years to, to hack into, if you will, because nobody wrote a killing marketing <laughs> 10 years ago, you know, when I, and, uh, I was, I was joked, like all we had back then was, you know, AdWords and, and we used to call it Google, you know, webmaster welfare, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Webmaster welfare. That's, and and oh, that was man, it, right? right? You know, so the you're you sitting go. there busting your ass and you're publishing and you're doing all this research and you're writing all this incredible content. And then you're looking at your $160, you know, AdWords check that came through, you know, or, you know, Ad, AdWords check. Did I get it wrong? Did I get it? The op- AdSense check, you know, that came through. And you're going, wow, what am I yeah. doing here? And, and that really, you know, inspires you to start, okay, I need to start seeking out other revenue models here and how I'm going to do this. And, and the irony to your guys's point is that 
companies are doing the same exact thing, except they had a product that they were selling, but they're still developing this value and authority and, you know, community of people that trust them. So why aren't they, you know, what, what do you think it is within the modern corporate system that makes them, you know, worried about, well, wait, maybe we could monetize this a different way. You know what I think it mostly is, is, is it's a, it's either an inability or an unwillingness to pivot on what we do versus what we say. And what I mean by that is, is that if you look at, you know, so you look at the new business models that are being invented, um, these days. And so, you know, and they're well, they're well worn, right? So you've got Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Amazon, basically the largest businesses that are really driving the movement in the market these days and that are, you know, that are front and center of all the headlines. All of them are classic, you know, they all started as classic one dimensional businesses that spoke in a very classic features and benefits way. You know, let's not forget that Netflix started out as a DVD rental, right? That's how, that's what you did with Netflix is you rented DVDs and that was it. And now they're turning into this integrated platform. Amazon started out as a bookseller and online bookstore and now is an integrated platform that sells most of its revenue generating business through enterprise services. And so you, you look at all of these platforms turning in, being willing to change what they do based on the audience that they're able to create through the media and content that they're able to generate and the marketing activities that they're able to generate. And what they're doing is they're taking advantage of everyone who comes into their sphere. And the classic marketing funnel, when we look at it, the classic business of doing what we do is to say, we need to tell a lot of people what we do. A few of them at any given time are going to come in and be interested in what we do. A few of those are going to be persuaded to do what we want them to do now. And then a few less of those will actually purchase from us. And then a few of those will actually be those who stay loyal to us and, and, and continue to buy stuff from us. And everybody else that falls out of that funnel along the way just goes right back into the general population and we go try and reach them again, hopefully reaching a better timing this time, which in inevitably results in campaign after campaign after campaign. And that model has worked and, by the way, will continue to work forever. The key is, is that is there a way that we can modify what we do ver and what we say to take advantage of all those people that are falling out of the funnel at any given time so that we can look at that as building an audience that we can sell many, 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 many things to like an Amazon or a Facebook or any integrated platform. Some of those things will make sense for our business. Some of those things are just extensions of our marketing that create monetization opportunities for us to do other things like hold events. You know, Salesforce and Dreamforce is the best example of this, right? Here is a software company that now owns the second largest technology event on the planet. And they attract 175,000 people who many of whom and most of whom, quite frankly, are not Salesforce customers to go to San Francisco, pay for the privilege of doing so, see a U2 concert, get educated about all things CRM and Salesforce automation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as Joe very rightly says, that event itself is probably worth a billion dollars if they were to sell it off as its own asset. That's the kind of pivoting that most businesses are unwilling or unable to do today. And that's the kind of change that, quite frankly, will leave most old school businesses in the dust. 
I love it. I on a on a tiny tiny mi- microcosm of that, you know, I worked at Exact Target in the early early days. Of course you did. I remember those days. Yeah, and I remember, you know, why why did those guys get in the business? Well, they wanted to make money in their sleep, right? That's that was the idea. Our our business was you know, sending out email, sending out email. And then more and more customers started to say, boy, we really need help with this. We really need help with this. And I remember the initial resistance internal that, no, we're not a service company. We're not a service company. We're a software company. And then, you know, I think it was somewhere in the duration of, you know, Scott McCorkle coming in. and One of the Scots. There were so many Scots in those days. There were like <laughs> tons of Scots at Exact Target. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of Scots. Uh, but... But I remember one day everybody kind of looked at each other and said, Hey, I think we're in a service industry business now, you know, and it was because the profitability of actually helping those customers exceeded, you know, the actual software um, licensing costs. And, and so I, I think it's a great, great example of, you know, if you have a flexible environment and you can look at what people need and, and you can provide it to them. Start providing it to them. Exactly. By the way, it's killing marketing. Um, it's out on Amazon, obviously. So uh, go out and give it a great review after you read it. Um, and <laughs> Thank you for that. There you go. Guys. Yeah, I appreciate that. You guys. Absolutely. I, I know how I know how important. Yes, those the great are. reviews you know, are I, very I important. If you're not willing to give it a great review, just don't bother. I, uh, really. I mean, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's exactly it. Um, what are some of the other business examples that you provide in the book that can really paint a picture for these? Well, uh, for these, I'll, I'll tell them the Aero Electronics. Yeah, story. Aero. I mean, that's Aero Electronics is probably my favorite case study going right now. I mean, Aero Electronics. If you're not familiar with them, Fortune 119 company. They did 24 billion dollars in revenue in 2016. They're they're an electronics distributor focusing on B2B engineers. And they did some, they looked at some research in 2013, 2014, and they said, well, how are all of our engineers, our buyers, how are they getting all their information? How are they educating themselves? And they did the research and they said, okay, well, basically they're getting, they're educating themselves and they're growing as engineers through media, through going to events, going to trade shows, uh, looking at webinars, getting e-newsletters, um, websites, whatever the case is from mostly traditional media companies. And then they looked at what was happening to traditional media companies and those media companies that were providing all this education for their engineers, they were cutting back and they're cutting their journalists, cutting their writers, cutting back on research. And the senior level folks at Aero Electronics looked and they said, we're really, this is really concerning because our, our customers, our audience, our buyers, they're getting these, this information from these media companies that are cutting back and soon they're going to be nothing. And that's going to kill our business model because they need to be educated on an ongoing basis to be in order to buy the stuff that we have in order to see innovation in our industry. And they said, well, what are we going to do? They got together and they said, you know, we have to do we have to take we have to become the media. And they went out and they bought over a 18 month span, 51 media properties in the electronic B2B electronics industry, basically all, you know, brand names, content platforms in the media, they can reach directly 76% of their total addressable market. It is a profitable entity and actually growing from 16 to 17. They actually grew in profit. So they've got 
multiple audiences. They reach the majority of, of these engineers and they monetize them directly through advertising, sponsorship, and content services. And what I thought was interesting, Douglas, they actually do content services for some of their competitors. I don't even know if some of the competitors know this, but they actually make money directly from competitors wow. because they've got amazing editorial and journalistic and creative staff to do that. And I mean, this is, it's interesting that we're seeing these possibilities where, yeah, yeah, you could go out and build that audience. Absolutely. But you can, we talk about this in a whole chapter in the book. You could go out and buy it as well. And we think that in the future, whether it's a small, medium size or large company, that you could wait the two to three years, be patient, build a loyal audience, start to monetize that audience in different ways. Or you can go out and say, well, where am I? Where's the audience I'm trying to target at? Where are they at now? Where do they have an affinity? Where is there a relationship, positive relationship? And maybe we should go out and purchase that platform. And obviously, we, we've done that at CMI uh, two times. We purchased our awards program and we purchased the event intelligent content conference. And we think that more organizations are going to do that in the future of M&A is really going to be, at least in the media industry, is going to be brands like Cisco Systems, like General Electric, like Oracle. They're the ones that are going to be buying these media companies because that's where all the money is right now. And then there's obviously lots of other examples. Pepsi, Mondelay, they've already come out and said, hey, we're going to launch a for-profit marketing center, uh, which is very intriguing. We'll see how they do. Marriott Content Studios, you know, they've already had more than 100 people that are working on content 24-7 in different forms and, and functions. So we're already seeing this happen. We haven't quite seen the Red Bull Media House or the Aero Electronics in a lot of other industries, but we feel we're very close to that happening. And that's hopefully somebody gets the book in their hand and they say, yeah, we can be the leading expert in our industry and we can be the innovative business model in our industry, but we've got to think a little bit differently to get there. Yeah. And I'll tell, I'll tell you one other one. I'll tell you one other one just um, on the other side of the spectrum here that just I, I absolutely adore. And it goes to both. What Joe was saying and what I was sort of tagging with when, when you'd asked me the earlier question, which is Zappos. So Zappos, in this case studies in the book as well, um, launched, they, one, it's, it's, it's just this wonderful thing. So of course everybody knows Tony Shea and, and the, you know, building happiness and, and the culture that they have built at Zappos as part of the core value of what they provide. And they launched a, a, a complete college, really. It's an educational center, right? Where there's an online educational component where you can go for 40 bucks a month and you can sign up for these, you know, learning the Zappos, you know, cultural way to lead in your business. But if you don't want to do it online, they also have on-site training where you can actually go and get a tour and and do um, uh, and do educational classes on site at Zappos where you pay and you go and you learn about how to empower employees and and learn about the Zappos culture and basically learn how to you know create happiness in your organization and they're offering up content and thought leadership with Tony himself, right? So you can actually have access to mentors within the Zappos organization, depending on what part of the organization you're in, whether you're in marketing or HR or PR or whatever it is. Uh, <clears throat> and you can create all that. And they created this as Zappos Insights Program, which is its own website, its own content platform, its own business model. And when we were talking to them about it, we said, what was the business reason for doing this? And she said, 
well, Tony has this vision of being a hundred year company. And his, his quote to us was basically in a hundred years, we may not be a shoe company, but we actually need to be an audience company where we deliver value to the people we deliver value to. And so this is one experiment to go look at that and generate money doing it. Well, I think Zappos is a is is probably a solid example too, because uh, you know, uh, and this might be my my take on it, but I'd love to hear your guys' feedback. Is you know, you guys both built world class. You know, you built a world class um, company with Content Marketing Institute, and then of course Content Marketing World. Um, a lot of companies, when we talk about content and we talk about building audience, aren't world class. Uh, in fact, I, I'd say that, you know, a, a, maybe a significant portion of them have done a really terrible job at just producing garbage, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, and, and it was because Google, you know, for a long time rewarded, you know, recency and frequency without focusing on quality at all. And, uh, I think, uh, in, in fact, wasn't it a content marketing world where, you know, the HubSpot you know, finally came out and said, Hey, you know, maybe paid is part of the, you know, part of the, um, you know, marketing mix that you got to start looking at. Uh, and everybody gasped that the inbound marketing company, you know, actually, you know, opened up and said that. And I, and I feel like, I feel like if you want to do this, you've got to be a Zappos, you've got to be a content marketing institute or a content marketing world. You can't half ass it. Yep. You've really got to look at your audience and say, we're going to put out the best freaking content, you know, and build the, you know, the, the utmost value for our clients that we can, because that's what's going to get them to love you and to trust you and to buy from you in other market areas. No, you're, you're absolutely right. We, one of my favorite, uh, we do obviously our content marketing benchmark research every year. One of my favorite stats is commitment level. And what we found is there's a correlation and a significance to those companies that are great at content marketing and, and whether they're fully committed. We've seen that over and over year after year. And, and if you're not fully committed and you're dabbling and you feel like you just, you're not, you don't necessarily need to be the best expert in the world at your particular niche, you will absolutely fail. So when Robert and I, we go speak around the world and talk about this and I say it flat out. If you, if you don't have a goal of being the leading expert in your niche to your particular audience, don't do it. Do not waste your time. You will be creating all this content. You'll be doing videos and podcasts and blog posts and God knows what else. And it's not going to work. So you can't. Right. So just don't even do it and save that for the companies that are really taking this seriously. Now, if you do, if you do have the goal and you find a niche where you can actually be the leading expert, wow. You have an amazing opportunity. And if you stick with it for over 12 months, because generally we see success after 12 to 18 months, then then your your entire business model will change. But I love that. I don't know if you have a take on that, Robert, but we've seen it over and over again. And, um, you know, leave leave it to the people that really want to make change happen and communicate differently. And if you don't, just keep doing ads. Just do whatever you've been doing. It's fine. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, just to dovetail a bit from that, which is it's, it's commitment requisite with the value expected. Right. So you, so as we've said, you know, and, and one of the things that often gets tossed out about why content marketing or the use of content and building audiences is, you know, hogwash or where gurus spouting some, you know, snake oil or something like that is that we're recommending that 
this is a replacement for advertising when it's actually quite the opposite of that. We're not suggesting that this is replacing what you're doing in traditional marketing and advertising. And in fact, if you do it right, it should make traditional marketing and advertising better in every single way. It should infuse into your business strategy. And if you look at it, not every company is going to need nor warrant the size of a Red Bull media house. And, you know, so it's, it's focus and commitment requisite with the value that's expected. So if you look at Zappos is a great example of that, right? Zappos insights, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess is 0.0001% of the revenue and value that they generate from selling shoes. But the commitment that they have to it is solid. They've, you know, as they say, and we mentioned in the book, They've got, you know, five and 10 year commitments. They're staffing this appropriate. They put the right experts in. They're funding marketing of it. They're funding the production of it. They're funding the whole thing. They're a hundred percent committed to the effort requisite with the value that they're looking to achieve. And that's the real difference here is that we look at this content marketing thing in many ways as this sort of little, you know, experiment that the guy in the red stapler, you know, in the back of the building is going to do for us. And we, and then we expect all of this transformational value out of it. It's the, it's the same mistake we made when we built websites in the early 2000s. It was the promise was build a website and get rich. And of course it didn't happen. And the same thing is true here. It's not just jump to content marketing and build the blog and you know, you, you're instantly transformed. It's, it's hard. It's difficult yeah. and welcome to marketing. It's always been that way. Oh. I love it. Uh, if anybody's listening, those those are the words to walk out of this with because I we've been you know I think we did a transition uh, a couple years ago and and I I was I, I've been providing this one example lately and we have a we have a fantastic client Lifeline Data Centers who we've been oh yeah um, nine years now we've been taking care of them and uh, and I the first piece of content that we ever did for them that really took off was you know we wrote a piece how to build a data center. And which might seem the most, you know, ridiculous thing to write about, except that, you know, they built their own data center from the ground up. And so they wanted to get the word out there about how different their differentiator was they built it. They didn't buy all the components and put it together. They actually had engineers and technicians and everything else that put it together. And so we put this out there and nine years later, it's still commanding, you know, uh, attention within their industry and driving leads for them. And so it was the first time that I looked at something and I said, wow, wait a second. It's not the three blog posts that we did, you know, every week for them for two years. It was this one piece of content that we did a ton of research on, really did a great job on and got it out there. And so we we did a second experiment with them where we had 14 different blog posts on their site talking about disaster recovery. And all of them were good, right? Not great, just good. And so I, you know, hired a, uh, I have this incredible writer, Matt. And I said, Matt, can you take all of this, you know, these 14 articles and just put it into an incredibly fascinating, deep, you know, article on disaster recovery that basically takes everything someone would need to know. And I said, here's all the competitors and their articles online. It has to be better than those. It has to stand out. And so he worked on it. And sure enough, 
uh, we did a, uh, I think I sent them the stats, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, 14 articles over the last nine years were garnering about 40 visits, you know, a month on average. So not much, you know, a few visits a day. Uh, and, and so the new article, we redirected all the old traffic to this one, of course. And the new article is about 250 visits a month already. And it just goes to show, look, all of it was the same information, you know, but we did a really, really great job at, you know, putting it into a premier piece of content for them. And now it's driving results, you know, and, and it's a lesson that I keep pushing everybody else on is forget the X blog posts per week, you know. I, I keep telling everybody, you know, look at your audience. And this is what killing marketing is saying is look at your audience and look at the information that they're seeking and be that source of information and be the best damn source of information that you can be for them. And guess what happens? This is what happens. Um, yeah. It's a compounding investment over time, yeah. right? I mean, it provides, it, it, it actually provides value way after you create it, which is how it differs from an ad, right? right? You've created something of value and thus it continues to provide value well after you've put it into the marketplace. Well, let's, let's, uh, where, do, where does a company start? Where, you know, if you were going to talk to a company that's <laughs> at the beginning, Douglas, that's where they start. <laughs> So let's, let's, let's say I'm a company and hey, I've had my, you know, my one intern that's been pushing out blog posts for the last, you know, couple of years. And yeah, we get it. And we get a couple of leads off of that every year. You know, uh, where, what is their next step? What, how do they turn into, you know, how do they take that engine and turn it into an audience creator and start driving profit, you know, and revenue from their marketing instead what, the, of an expense? I, I guess I would, I would say you have to get to a point where, and cop and uh, Brian Clark from copy blogger used to talk about this. You have to get to a minimum viable audience that makes sense that you can start to monetize because you don't monetize from day one. It's not going to happen. So what does that yep. mean? That means that you start, as Robert said, at the beginning. And there's a whole, I mean, Robert does a full day of how you build a content marketing strategy so you could set it up for success and monetization. I'm going to try to be very succinct in two minutes and tell you what to do. But which basically start with who is the audience? Who is that particular audience that we're trying to target? And you want to get very niche with that audience and get very focused. And you figure out, okay, well, what am I trying to do? Why am I doing that? Ask the question. Why am I going to do this in the first place? Set the vision for yourself on what's possible and then figure out, okay, what's the story that I want to tell to them? What value do I want to deliver to them on a regular basis? And we haven't even started creating content yet. You're just asking strategic questions to figure out if this even makes sense. And then you might get to a point where say, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to go ahead and we're going to target these engineers and we're, we're going to deliver the best information on industrial soldering equipment. Uh, you know, Indium, we use, always use the Indium example all the time. Industrial soldering equipment in the world to them on a regular basis. We're going to leverage our 21 engineers and we're going to segment into 70 different blogs and we're going to deliver that message to them and build many, many audiences as we go. And what does that look like? Does it, uh, yeah, is that a blog? How frequent? Then you get into the, the questions of what that content actually looks like. But the thing is, is that when you get to that point, you should be like, two, that's, that's weeks and weeks later. The problem, Douglas, and you know this firsthand, yep. most people start with, I want to do a blog. Let's go do a podcast. 
Let's <laughs> let's do some videos. Which if you ever do right. a content audit of any size enterprise YouTube channel, you'll see that somebody launched a YouTube channel, uploaded it with like 16 videos, and then stopped. Like that was going to be that was hey, going to be their video strategy. Let's just throw every piece of video. Joe, I'm sitting right here. I can yeah, hear exa- you. Yeah, exa- <laughs> so you know, it's that that's it's so so. I would say to anyone listening to this is, why are you going to do this in the first place? What's the audience we're going to target? Where can we actually be the leading expert in the world and take that seriously? Figure out okay, what's our competitive set? Can we make sure is our competitive set less than five? Because if it's more than five, you're probably not going to be the leading expert in the world. Like, who are you really competing against? So get that real, get that target down to a point where it's manageable that you can actually be successful. There's never, uh, there's never too niche. You, you can't do that. You can, you want to go really targeted and focused to start with. And if you become the leading expert to that group of people over time and they opt in, let's say through your regular e-newsletter, then you can start to look at, hey, we've got 2,500 or 5,000 or 10,000 of these people that lean on us every day, every week, every month, whatever it is for this information. And then as long as you're listening, they probably will tell you how they're, how you can monetize it. They'll tell you that they're going to buy more of your products. They'll tell you that, oh, you, you have room for a sponsorship into that. They'll tell you that they want an event for this. They'll tell, I mean, that's basically how Content Marketing Institute was born. We, we didn't, this is not rocket science. We just listened to the audience and they told us, and now we have about 14 different revenue drivers. Not one that we, that Robert and I get in the room and say, we should do this. We just listened to the audience that we already had and they told us what to start and we executed on it. That was it. Well, and, and you guys aren't doing a good job of self promotion on this. Um, aside from, of course, the book, contentmarketinginstitute.com, you guys have written up these how to guides and you continuously keep them up to date. So if, uh, if you get a chance, go to contentmarketinginstitute.com, look on the sidebar, uh, sign up for obviously become a subscriber. Um, but, but you can go through all of these if you're, if you're a company thinking about moving in this direction. And I, and I, and I also like your comment there that, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to have a hundred thousand, you know, uh, subscribers before you actually monetize, right? You know, I mean, you can have 100 in a niche category that, uh, you know, are spending a significant amount of money and see you as their leader. And, well, I'll, and I'll give you a really great you. example. I worked on this project with Agilent Technologies yep. 15 years ago, and we had an audience of 150. One five zero, but that go. 150 had a lot of buying power. So depends on, you know, like yep. if you're a B2C company yep. and you're selling head and shoulders or something like that, 150 is not going to be enough. But, but if you're selling, right. yeah, but if you're selling, <laughs> you know, construction cranes or something like that, yeah, 150, 500, something like that, something like that might work for you. <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that. It's probably because I have no hair and I really want some. You would Joe. Well, Joe's either going to break the, whenever the consumer product is either head and shoulders or Swiffer Swiffer pads. I love the Swiffer pad. Who cannot? Nobody hates the Swiffer pad. Yeah. Nobody. I kind of like the Swiffer. That's true. I kind of like the Swiffer duster better. Well, I mean, it's all the same family, right? You have an, you have an affinity for Swiffer itself. Everyone does. Everyone knows this. (laughs) 
Have you talked? Have you- See how they've monetized? <laughs> they've turned into an integrated platform right oh, before God. your very eyes, the Swiffer platform. <laughs> There's some truth to that, right? They have the fan cleaner. They have the floor cleaner. They have the wet wipe. <clears throat> they, yeah, they're they're doing it. You're, to your point, well, I right? think that, you know, back to Robert, you said this, and I, I yes. just think that if you are a business leader, you have to think about the fact that you're not going to be selling the product you're currently selling forever. So that means you cannot right. fall in love with your product. You have to fall in love with your yeah. audience. And if you fall in love with your audience, all good stuff will or, happen. Yeah, that's that's exactly why Kodak, it. that's what happened to Kodak, right? Kodak that's fell exactly in love right. with their wonderful invention. <clears throat> if they would have fallen in love with the audience that was using that invention, they would not have been where they are today, which is yeah, obviously bankruptcy and all that stuff. And there's a, and there's a really, there's a really interesting layer to this, which is, you know, we come to that conclusion, honestly, because, you know, for those of us, certainly of any age, we come out of a, you know, we come out of a, you know, of history where pivoting on product was an incredibly hard thing to do. It was, you know, distribution was difficult and the manufacturing was difficult and the product research and labeling and, and all of that was difficult and hard and expensive. And so you, you came out with a product or changes to a product very, 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 uh, carefully. And interestingly now, and, you know, so Lego is a great example of this. And I tell this story, um, in our masterclass, which is if you think about Lego, they were a moribund, you know, bankrupt, you know, ready to go under business in the early 2000s, ready to just hang it up. And they transformed themselves into this media brand that launched, of all things, a movie, a feature film called the Lego movie. But what they did was they didn't go to Hollywood and say, here's our product, make a movie out of this. They instead really fell in love with the audience and said, here, make a movie that you want out of Lego things. And whatever resonates with the audience, we can make the toys. We have the capacity to make any toy we want. And so we'll figure out the licensing deals. We'll figure out the toy manufacturing, the distribution and all of that. The technology has advanced there. The technology has not only advanced in terms of how we create content and propagate message. The technology has also changed, by the way, for how we can manufacture and distribute product into a marketplace. And so we can take advantage of that too. the disruptions there as well to say, go fall in love with what an audience wants, because quite frankly, it's cheap now to go get things manufactured and distributed. And if they tell us to go build widgets, we'll go. Gary V is now making sneakers. I mean, of all things, right? And so now that may be a good idea. It may be a bad idea, but there's Gary Vaynerchuk, who is absolutely started as a media brand is now pivoting into creating sneakers. And he's going to, he's going to make sneakers because why it's easy. Are they called Vickers? <laughs> no, no, they're called, I think they're called Vaynerchuks actually. See what I did there? See what I did there? Oh, man. See what I did there? That's perfect. Never play that game with me. Never play that game with the master, my friend. That is this. I just can't wait. I just can't wait to hear his not safe for work TV ads. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, that's awesome. Well, the, you guys, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today and, and talking to me. Um, Joe and Robert, you know, uh, wrote 
you know, uh, for everybody listening again, go out, buy it. Killing marketing, how innovative businesses are turning marketing cost into profit and really start to pay attention to this because I, I think it's, you guys are, are really breaking into some, um, you know, some things that uh, the future is going to prove you right. Uh, it already has with some companies, but I think others, cause I, you know, maybe as a last thought, I was looking online and seeing some people poo-pooing, you know, some of the unicorns out there and, and the fact that, you know, a company like WeWork, you know, doesn't actually own any office space, doesn't actually own anything except the idea of, you know, collaborative workspaces, you know, countrywide, you know, but what they do have is they're building one hell of a huge audience. And, and now if the, you know, and, and juxtapose that to someone like, uh, you know, Snapchat who had the audience, but hasn't figured out what to sell them yet. Right. And maybe doesn't have anybody that's that really intrigued with what they're, you know, like I think the eyeglasses are the, the snap glasses are sitting in, you know, warehouses someday, somewhere that well you know what that, that I know you're wrapping up the show, but that's just such a great point because we just covered Snapchat's uh, earnings report. Yep. And he said, the, the CEO said, we have $40 million of spectacles in inventory that we don't know what to do with. And we just created them and thought it would be a good idea. They never got any input from the audience on what they would buy. Perfect example. Yeah. And, and, and no doubt. I mean, my, my daughter's a Snapchat maniac. They have absolutely ravenous fans, you know, so if they could just tap into that audience and see what they want, there's no doubt that the, you know, buying power there is, is just huge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, I think that we're the trap that they're in right now is outside of the spectacles thing. They're so hooked with that media model and the sponsored content and they have to go that direction. And I really, I mean, I really think that that audience would buy things. They would buy, they would buy products that they're already talking about in their different fiefdoms. So I would, I would go that direction, but you know, all they have to do is ask. I'm sure they, I'm sure they already have the answer with the data. I'm sure the data already tells them what they would buy. They just have to go that direction. And then for, uh, you know, for marketing technology companies that are looking to expand your publishing empire, you know, martech.zone is pretty good. There you go. <laughs> Coming. <laughs> No, Look at you. Just, well done there. There no, you go. I, I, I can't get away from this. This is my addiction. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, Joe and Robert, uh, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. Thanks for spending time. And we, we have to do this more often. Uh, so so definitely uh, one last time, tell people where to find you. Uh, Joe, they're not going to find you anywhere <laughs> no, for a while. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, go, go bother. Go bother, Robert. Hey, I'm, I'm at Joe Polizzi, P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I on Twitter. JoePolizzi.com is the address, but KillingMarketing.com is the book. So definitely want to send everyone there. You can get the links to the audio version and print and ebook and all that good stuff. And, and Roberto, how about you? Yeah, I'm at Robert underscore Rose on the Twitter. Um, and then, of course, yes, ContentMarketingInstitute.com. Go check it out. And uh, hopefully there's some good stuff for you to start your process. Fantastic. Well, thanks Thanks so much for spending time to us today. Uh, for everybody listening, MarTech Interviews, please subscribe. Uh, if you like the show, of course, give us time and give us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're listening at. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. 
The MarTech Interviews podcast is recorded at DK New Media's state-of-the-art podcast studio at the Speakeasy in downtown Indianapolis. Subscribe at martech.zone. Sponsorships and marketing services are available through dknewmedia.com.